0: Well, good morning, church, and good morning to those who are visiting with us as well. Just as to kind of like help everybody know where we're at, we've been working our way through the book of Acts for about a year and a half. So when, when you come and you hear somebody reading an entire chapter, um, we've been working our way through, and before every sermon, we read the text that we're going to be preaching on so everybody can hear the entire text and we are yes taking on the entire chapter even though it says to verse 24 in your bulletin which was my fault and my typo um yes we are to the end of the chapter so let's turn to our let's turn to our passage where we're at picking up with paul and and if you've been with us through this entire series so far you might just be feeling like you like you're just kind of a little bit of deja vu. Like you're trapped in some sort of temporal time warp because this text contains another trial and another legal defense. It's like, Luke, how many of these things do you have to include? Like, couldn't you give us the cliff note version? Summarize them all at once, get the story moving. But he doesn't. And when authors do this, when they really slow down and they work through all the evidence, what they're trying to tell us is there's some important things they want us to see. There's important aspects in each stage of Paul's journey. So the redundancy has a perfect purpose. And that is that each trial reveals something new about Paul. It reveals something new about the gospel. And it reveals something new about the counterintuitive way that God wields his purposeful sovereignty in the affairs of men. We see that in each time. Something different is revealed. Today, in our text, in regards to Paul... His trial before Felix demonstrates that he is innocent of all charges against him and he poses no threat to Rome. No threat. In regard to the gospel, the trial makes it clear that Paul is wholly faithful to the scriptures. He's not making stuff up. In regards to God, the aftermath of the trial discloses God's slow but purposeful work in Paul's continuing imprisonment. Now, now if I was just going to teach a Bible study or teach a college class on, on, on this passage, I'd probably use these three points as my outline. But given the fact that we really want to drive the truths of these texts deep into our lives that we can apply them, I've elected to organize my sermon around two key principles that flow from the text. So instead of stating one main idea, we're going to kind of have two main ideas we're going to be working with today. The first that we're going to see in Paul's trial Stated clearly from the beginning to the end of Paul's dispense is that God's people pose no threat to the common good and stability of their society. The second thing that we're going to see in Paul's continuing imprisonment is that God's plans are not dependent on his people's calendar or their sense of efficiency. God's plans don't hang on your sense of efficiency or mine. And that is because God is working his gospel purposes in the world through his blood-bought people according to his sovereign plan. So let's turn to our first point this morning. God's people are no threat to the common good and stability of their society, which is the primary argument that's going on in this trial that Paul has. I'm going to pick this up in verse 2 so we can get the charges against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, and in every way and everywhere we accept this with gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg with your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague." One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He has even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also join in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, now, if you've been with us through this entire ordeal that Paul's been going through since chapter 21... You might, you might recognize a significant escalation in this trial before Felix here. And that is, that is the fact that the chief priest is not the one who's presenting the charges against Paul. Rather, he's relying on the services of a professional lawyer by the name of Tertullus. This, this helps us see that unlike Paul's hearing before the Sanhedrin in the barracks before the tribune, this hearing before Felix is a proper Roman trial. This is a real trial. And it's in this context of a Roman trial before a Roman governor that Paul is being portrayed by this lawyer as an enemy of the state. He's an enemy. Not not in the sense that he was leading a military or terroristic campaign, but that he was an irreligious man who was inciting riots and overturning the common good wherever he went. He's a plague to society. I mean, just, just look at the charges that we see come out in verses five through eight. A plague. Well, what's this plague? He's charging Paul with being a person through whom every manner of evil is perpetuated and quickly transmitted to other people. So see, calling Paul a plague, he's not just saying Paul's a bad man. He's saying that he's a man that influences other people. He carries an influence and it rubs off. Everywhere he goes, it just keeps expanding. He's a one man pandemic. That's what he is. And what kind of evil has this man wrought? He's threatened the peace of the empire two different ways. Number one, he's threatened the common good of the people and the security of the empire by inciting riots wherever he goes. Everywhere he goes, he starts riot. Every province of the capital or every province of the empire he's traveled through, he starts riots. And now, before you quickly dismiss this, it's important to remember that the charge is partially true, right? It's partially true, it's a half truth. There have been riots across the empire everywhere Paul has been, but he didn't start them, right? So you see, there's a difference between causation and correlation. In fact, this is something we ought to learn in our society that we live in. There's a difference between causation and correlation. There is a correlation between Paul's presence and the riots. There's a correlation. He was there and there were riots, but he was not the cause. The Jews were the cause. They stirred up the riots. And if this charge wasn't bad enough, Number two, Paul is being threatened or or Paul is being accused of threatening the peace of Jerusalem by desecrating the temple itself And, and this is particularly damaging and dangerous because the Romans had granted the Jews really significant power and freedom to protect the temple. I mean if they can hang Paul on this one, they get to carry out the sentence themselves So they put him in double jeopardy. Tertullus has just painted Paul in the worst possible light and he's placed him under the threat of death because rioting and rebellion and religious meddling were all capital offenses in the empire. So Paul's in a dangerous position. Yet before we press into Paul's defense, I think it'd be good just to highlight the similarity between Tertullus' accusations against Paul and, and the kind of accusations that faithful Christians face in this world today. Let's just, just draw a couple pieces out here. See, the heart, against, the, the, the heart of the charge against Paul Is it Paul and his teaching were a plague or a dangerous disease that needed to be quickly eradicated before it infected the rest of the empire? Or to put it in terms of our first point this morning, the argument is that Christianity is a threat to the common good and the stability of Roman society. That's the argument. And and while the details might be different between Paul and us, Faithful Christians face the very same charges today. Christianity is a threat to the common good, we're told. It's a threat to the stability of America or Canada or Europe or Africa or wherever we happen to be. It's a threat. And and I know this this thing is going to be really, really difficult, especially for those who grew up in the 40s and 50s. Because back then, Christianity was everywhere. Now, that's not to say that everyone was actually Christian. There was a lot of nominal Christianity. But Christianity was everywhere in American culture. But that's no longer the case, is it? We live in a post-Christian age, an age in which faithful Christians are no longer viewed as honorable people who serve and strengthen the societies in which they live. That was once true, and it is no longer true. No, we live in a day now where faithful Christians are increasingly viewed as Paul, a plague. A plague to the culture in which we live, where we're viewed as a group of narrow-minded bigots who openly threaten the love and diversity and inclusion in our society by by spreading a hate-filled, shame-inducing gospel. That's often how Christians are seen today. It's an offensive message that assaults every person's right to be themselves and to fully embrace their personhood. See, see this is this is how a large portion of society, not all, certainly not all. But it's 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 how a larger portion of society views Christianity today. And unless God intervenes in a massive way, it's it's really only going to get worse. And I know in our in our hearts it can just make us want to lash out because the accusations are so untrue. But I believe that Paul presents us with a far better pattern in his defence. In his defence. The first thing that Paul does in his defence is he makes it emphatically clear how he is not a troublemaker. On the one hand, when he addresses Felix, he addresses him with the utmost respect. And, and on the other hand, he points to the clearest evidence of his innocence. I mean, I mean, for Paul, he can tell Felix, hey Felix, it's been 12 days. 12 days since my encounter in the temple. I mean, I mean you can easily go verify, go send some people out. It's been 12 days. And what about what was I doing in the temple? You can find out. You can get the answers. I went to the temple to worship. While I was in Jerusalem. What did I do? I, I wasn't trying to stir up a single crowd. I wasn't trying to stir up anybody in the synagogues. No, to the contrary, my purpose in Jerusalem was entirely noble. And we saw this back in 20, chapter 21. Paul comes to town. What's he bringing? A sizable offering to the church from the Gentile churches to meet the needs of the poor in the city. Like, you want to talk about being a good to society? Caring for and loving the people. He's doing it. I mean, in many ways, Paul should be recognized as a selfless benefactor, not a vicious rebel leader. Yet as Paul transitions to the second stage of his defense, he doesn't deny the fact that he's a leader. Rather, he clarifies the nature of his leadership and the content of his beliefs. This is key. He doesn't deny what's true. There are things that are true, but they've been spun, and now he's straightening them out. Yes, he's a follower of the way, but his group should not be considered a sect. It should not be considered a heretical deviation from Judaism. No, Paul and his fellow Christians were wholly orthodox in everything that they believed. First half of verse 14. We do not worship another God. We worship the God of our fathers. That is the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. That's who we worship. Second half of verse 14. We haven't invented a new religion by adjusting or perverting the Holy Scriptures. Like, like, we didn't just make this thing up. No, everything we believe is is clearly anchored in and, and, and it's attested to in the law and in the prophets. Black and white, it's right there in the scrolls. You can read the scriptures for yourself and see I'm telling you the truth. Verse 15. We hold to a hope that is clearly taught in the scriptures. What they're looking for, it's clearly taught and it's wholly believed and it's actually something believed within the membership of the Sanhedrin. We saw in the trial, the Pharisees believing in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. He's saying everything we believe, it's in there. It's believed by people in the Sanhedrin. And as he wraps up, he's saying it's like I've done everything in my power to, to to walk in a clear conscience before God and man. We've talked about this before. Not that our conscience can ultimately make us pure, but he's trying to make sure that everything he does brings honor and glory to God. See, in all this, Paul's saying, I'm not a sectarian heretic. I'm not a religious deviant. I'm not a religious innovator. I'm completely loyal to my ancestral faith. Even more, every single one of my beliefs are firmly anchored in the Bible, and they are supported by mainstream Judaism. My worship, my faith, and my hope and my goals are in direct continuity with the teachings of the Old Testament. That's his argument. He turns to the temple. He's like, man, far from desecrating the temple. What was his visit to the temple? It was in complete conformity to the purity standards in God's word, right? We saw he went to the temple to give them Notice about the days of purification that he was going to observe. He went there. He told them what he was going to do. Then when that time was complete, he showed back up. He was finishing off the process of purification. No fanfare, no crowds, no disturbance. Certainly, no defiling act. When a group of angry Jews from Asia stirred up a lynch mob and almost put him to death. It's the story. And it's at this point that Paul quickly transitions from defense to offense. It's not merely defense. He turns around to offense to note the marked absence of his true accusers. His true accusers are all these guys, these Jews from Asia and in their absence, he's pointing out to Felix is a monumental breach in Roman law. The true accusers aren't present. The Pharisees, or the, I should say the Sadducees and the chief priests are not the people who saw this happen. And as a result of these people not being there, he should be cleared of every wrongdoing. The Sanhedrin has no authority to charge him. They weren't present when the riot broke out and on the other hand when it came to specifically religious matters when Paul sat in front of them in the barracks with Lysias the Tribune. They had not charged him of a single thing. So Paul's point's clear. There's no real case against me. And as a Roman citizen you should release me and allow me to go on my way. But as we all know the legal system doesn't always uphold the rights of the innocent it doesn't always work the way it's supposed to work yet in this moment of blatant injustice that we're confronted with the truth that god's purposes are not dependent on his people's sense of efficiency it's not dependent on their calendar let's go to verse 22 But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days, Felix, with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ, Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. For when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he'd hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desired to do a favor to the Jews and Felix left Paul in prison. Now, now what does Luke want us to see the most clearly at this stage? He, he wants us to see that Felix had every evidence that Paul is innocent. Every evidence. Felix has received a letter from Lysias the Tribune clearly stating that Paul is innocent. Number two, he heard Paul's defense which cleared him of the wrongdoing and on top of all of this we find out in verse 22 that Felix has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. That is to say he had a rather accurate understanding of the true Christian faith. He's like, I didn't fall off the turn up truck yesterday. It means he can see right through the false charges. He can see right through him, yet despite three different testimonies to Paul's innocence. Paul's innocence, Felix refuses to release Paul. And it's a lame reason. He just wants to line his pockets. He's not keeping him there for any true legal reason. And as a result, the very person who could publicly exonerate Paul and release him from further gospel ministry keeps him imprisoned for two years. Now, just, just don't miss that. In one verse, two years of Paul's life. Does two years feel that quick to you? I and mean, just think about it, two, two years unjustly imprisoned. knowing a guy just wants to get money. Two years. In fact, I just have to imagine that there has to be some point where Paul has to be wrestling with us, I'm thinking. Like, I don't know. But I'm just putting, like, myself, like, like I'll just say, like, like for, for me, if I'm in Paul's shoes for the moment. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Okay, last Chapter. Jesus tells him that he's going to preach the gospel in Rome as a prisoner. What happens the very next day? His nephew arrives with news of a secret plot against his life. The tribune instantly responds to the danger by sending Paul up to Felix in Caesarea. So, vision movement. Paul's like, man, I'm going to be in Rome in no time at all. And then all of a sudden, what happens? We got instant transport out of Jerusalem to Caesarea and a two-year delay. Two years of Paul's life on hold. He could have been preaching. He could have been teaching and expanding the boundaries of the church throughout the ancient world, but he's not. He's in prison. But what does this unexpected development help us see about God? We've had a couple sermons. We've been focused on the providence of God, the work of God, and the sovereignty of God. It helps to see that God's purposes are not dependent on our sense of efficiency. In fact, let me make it more uncomfortable. God's purposes aren't even dependent on your physical freedom. Get a little uncomfortable there. But they're not, are they? I mean, in fact, as we read the text, it seems to be pretty clear that Paul is exactly where God wants him to be. He's in prison. But do you notice that he's still on mission? He's still on mission. From everything we see in the text, he, he's not lobbying for his freedom. He seems to be focused on the one thing that he does the best and that's to preach the gospel. He's preaching to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Talking about faith and self-control and judgment. He's covering all aspects. He's not preaching an easy-believing gospel. He's preaching the whole gospel. It rattles Felix to his core. He didn't want to hear it anymore but he's preaching the gospel. And while it might look like Paul is nothing more than a helpless pawn in a larger political game, what we see here is that Paul is at the center of God's will. And while he's here at the center of God's will, we need to acknowledge that there's a privilege that Paul has in this moment that he has not had his entire ministry life. The privilege is that he has gospel access to one of the highest, to actually the highest Roman official in the region. He has freedom to preach for two years. I, I don't know how often he called for him. But he has access to preach the gospel to somebody that he would never have had an opportunity to speak to had he not been in prison. So, you see, God is working out his plan according to his sovereign purposes in the midst of Rome's injustice and Paul's imprisonment. But, like, we're not trying to call this justice, it's injustice. But in his providence, God is working. And this is important for us to see, especially as Americans. We're, 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 we're so hooked on our time and our efficiency, we don't wait for anyone or anything. We live at the pace of now. There's times we don't drive to Walmart because we can order it from Amazon. Right? But one of the most glorious truths about God is that he's not hampered by time. And in addition to that, God tells us something about his slowness his slowness is an intentional expression of his grace 2 Peter chapter 3 starting in verse 8 the apostle tells us this do not overlook this fact beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years is as one day now that's not given to us for math purposes, okay? Okay. Don't don't try to go, "Oh, God said it is going to be one day, it's going to be th-. no, that's not what it's there for." It's saying God doesn't do time like we do time. So why does he want us to know that God doesn't do time like we do time? Verse 9. "The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises, and some count slowness." He's saying, "We think it's slow. We think it's taken forever." And he's saying, God's not slow, no, but he's he's patient towards you, not wishing that any perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's slowness is gloriously purposeful. Friends, this is what God is doing in Paul's two-year delay. He's demonstrating his love and his patience and his grace to a self-serving, money-grubbing, justice-twisting ruler who never responds to the gospel. On the final day, Felix will be among those who have no excuse to the truth of the gospel. Yet we see God's patience and his grace in giving Felix multiple opportunities to hear and to embrace the gospel in saving faith. So let's move to some application. What have we seen throughout the entire book of Acts? What have we seen through Paul's trials have Christians caused a single riot? The answer is no. Christians don't riot. No, the unbelieving Jews, the unbelieving Gentiles, they've started the riots, and they've always started them to attack the Christians, to drive them out of town, or to kill them if possible. As we've read through the book, have Christians bored false witnessed against others or accused innocent people of wrongdoing? No. No, off the top of my head, I think we got one account of Christians lying. Ananias and Sapphira. That didn't go very well. Have Christians mounted any form of physical or military threat against the Roman Empire or against even the priesthood? The answer is no. In every chapter, every verse of Acts, Luke has made it clear that faithful Christians pose no threat to the common good and stability of their society. That's what Paul's been arguing but does that mean that Christians embrace their society's values and what the society believes about the common good? The answer to that is no. No, the riot by the silversmiths that we saw back in Ephesus in Acts 19 helped us see The the, the Christians aren't just agreeing to everything the society says. No, they stand in opposition to it in everything that they are doing and it changed Ephesus and it turned the social system and the financial system on its head when the silversmiths couldn't sell their statues anymore because nobody was buying them. And we saw in that that the gospel transforms society from the inside out as individual people come to faith in Jesus Christ and submit their lives to his sovereign lordship. Change. Change happening at the individual level by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not once has Christianity tried to change society through riots or revolutions. It's always been through the redemptive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that takes us to the question how should this truth shape our interactions in a society that is increasingly hostile to the gospel and openly celebrates the clearest expressions of sinful deviancy? I'd like to highlight two implications that flow from this testimony before Felix. Two implications. Number one. When I talk about Paul's interactions, we see that his interactions with Felix is notably different than, than his interaction with the high priest Ananias. Two trials, two, two very different interactions between Paul and the people leading the trials. See, see, whereas whereas Paul openly confronted the sinful hypocrisy of Ananias in chapter 3, he pronounces a prophetic curse over him. Paul treats Felix with the utmost honor and respect. And from everything we can see in the text, he continues to do it, even though Felix refuses to release him. But why? Why doesn't he treat them the same? Why doesn't he treat Felix and Ananias the thing? It's the same. I think it's because as the high priest, Ananias is functioning as something that Felix is not. Ananias is functioning as an official representative of God and his will over the people of Israel. Felix isn't. He's functioning and he's looked up. To by the people as the mouthpiece of God Himself. So, in the case of Ananias, Paul was exposing and condemning his blatant hypocrisy and his abuse of power for everyone to see. That's what He's saying. He's saying, You're not speaking for God. And in light of this, I think that in the church and as Christians, our strongest and sharpest criticisms need to be leveled at those so-called pastors and religious leaders who are actively compromising God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ because history has shown us the greatest threat to the church is false teaching and apostasy from within not persecution from without the greatest danger is false teaching and error on the inside persecutions no fun and we don't look forward to it but persecution doesn't ever destroy the church and on the other hand when it comes to confrontations and conflict in the public realm with government officials like Felix i think we see in Paul's example to to engage with the utmost propriety within both the freedoms and the proscriptions of the law. Paul knows his legal rights and, and and he leverages them. I mean, he gets out of getting whipped by saying, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Don't do that. In the, in the chapter between this and the next, he's going he's to appeal to Caesar to get sent to Rome because he sees he's not being treated well and the guys in the, in the area that he's at really kind of want to just release him to the Jews and wash their hands. So he appeals to Caesar. So, so he's, it's not like he doesn't use the legal system and he doesn't use those rights. But we see a different interaction with how he interacts with these people that are in government compared to religious leaders. Number two. Paul's defence before Felix I think it reminds us that every Christian every Christian should be able to articulate the gospel with biblical clarity. And you were like, well Mark, we're Christians, I think we like why, what, what do you mean? Let me, let, me, let me show you what I mean here. We need to articulate the gospel with biblical clarity. Because on the one hand, in this, in this episode, Paul, Paul actually, through a rather extended defense, demonstrates that his Christian faith is in direct continuity with his Jewish heritage. Christians today need to, need to be able to demonstrate how the gospel is in fact good news to all people without abandoning the offense of the gospel. The good news of the gospel comes with an offense. We can't erase the offense to try to make it better good news. So how about some hard things to say? We gotta say these at the right time at the right way. But the Bible's clear that God does not love and accept everyone just as they are. God doesn't love and accept everyone just as they are. Because where are they as they are? They're in their sin and their rebellion against Him. No, the Bible's clear sinful humans find God's love and they find His acceptance only one way, and and that's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Felix didn't like that. It bothered him deeply. He walked away. The wages of sin is death, but Paul was preaching faith in Christ. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we talk about sin... There's a definition we often use and it's helpful because it reminds us that you and I do not get to decide what sin is and what sin is not. Sin is any attitude or desire or action that explicitly breaks a commandment of scripture that comes from a heart of unbelief or is not done for the glory of God. Sin is defined by God's word, not by humans. See, the offense of the gospel is that we're all sinners and that we all deserve God's wrath for our sin. We all deserve it. Yet it's the very affirmation. In this very affirmation, it should actually make it clear that we're not being judgmental bigots. We're simply affirming what the Bible has declared for 4,000 years first in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. We're affirming what God has revealed about himself. We're affirming what God has revealed about morality and right and wrong. And that they ultimately relate to our relationship with him, not merely our relationship with one another. And in proclaiming these truths about sin, sin, We're not doing it to shame or condemn people. Just to try to make them look bad. No, the whole purpose about talking about sin in the first place is to help people see their desperate condition. The gospel's not good news until you realize that you really need it. They need to see their desperate condition and know they need to find forgiveness and freedom in Jesus Christ the person through whom God demonstrated his love when you think about love and God's love what does God's look like it looks God's love looks like the gospel for God so loved the world in the greek this word for could also be translated in this way how did God love the world he loved it in this way that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, how did God love the world? God did not say, I will love you and accept you in all of your sin. That is not God's love for the world. God didn't say, just be true to yourself. He didn't just say, do the best you can. He didn't say that. No, in his love he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who believe. No matter what those sins happen to be. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation that's a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5 starting verse 8 but God shows his love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us. All of this showing there's a problem and it needs to be fixed and our sin is really, really, really a problem. Verse 9 since therefore we've been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Uh, Did you catch that wrath of God? These are the Bible's words, not our words. For if we were his enemies, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Notice we're not, we're not, we're not refining the gospel down to some simple tiny statement or only one verse. Verse. See, the gospel is clear. No one is more or less deserving of the gospel. No one is more or less deserving of the gospel. Every person on this planet is equally condemned in their sin, even though their sin is not as equally toxic or damaging to the people around them. There is sin that has greater negative impacts on other people than some sins. But God is an equal opportunity savior. He doesn't discriminate. He doesn't show preferences to certain kind of sinners. He saves every kind of sinner who repents and believes in his Son. That's what He does. There's not a sin from which God will not forgive and rescue someone. But we can't even stop here when we talk about explaining the gospel. Because on the one hand, yes, God forgives all of our sins and he credits us with the infinite righteousness of Christ that we could never consume in a lifetime of sin, And he does it the moment we come to faith in Christ. But on the other hand, he commands us. Doesn't request us, he commands us to submit our lives to his sovereign lordship and to forsake every vestige of sin in our life out of our love for God Himself. See, the gospel has implications after we come to faith in Christ. First John chapter 5, starting from verse 3. For this is the love of God. What's one of the ways we can tell that people love God? That we keep his commandments and his commandments aren't a burden. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Why are his commands not a burden? It's because we find delight and joy in God and we know that we find greater happiness through obedience than sin. See, simply put, the gospel comes with conditions. It demands that we forsake everything in our lives that God calls sin and that we joyfully pursue obedience to Christ through the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul says, he gives a warning to the church. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's a danger that some people are going to be deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then comes verse 11. And such were some of you. God saves every kind of sinner. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, that is the gospel. Is it getting harder to share the gospel? Yes. But I think this is how. How can we continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel? Without, without abandoning the offense of the gospel. We need to be able to talk more broadly about the categories that are connected to the gospel. How do we understand sin before and after we come to faith? What has Christ done? Who deserves his wrath? We, we need to be able to walk through those things and not just focus on hot-button issues and maybe, just maybe, As Christians, we might find a few more opportunities to share the gospel if we graciously addressed the lies and the half-truths that exist in our society with a clear and loving presentation of the truth. To step into conversations, when appropriate, to be able to make it clear what the gospel does and does not say. If you have not understood the gospel before and if you have not responded, I would invite you today to believe. I'm told if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be Saved. Today's the day. If you're still trying to figure it out, I'm available. There's other people that are here available that would love to share with you, whether somebody sitting around you or our prayer team. But if there's one thing we want to make sure that everybody knows is this truth. Let's close in a word of prayer.